Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available now as an audiobook, a paperback, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, for more information about the book, more information about me, and more importantly, interviews with thousands of editors, literary agents, authors, all the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. So a brief uh, anecdote to get us started. Uh, when I was in fourth grade, uh, probably my, the most I've ever loved a teacher, although it's a tough call because I have been uh, blessed to have had many wonderful teachers, but my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Eddie, uh, when she read a book that, that hit her emotionally, she would cry through it. And the hardest we ever heard her cry was when she read us Bridge to Terabithia. We came back from lunch and we had, were in the last few chapters and it took us the rest of the day to get through them. Uh, we had, she had to stop and repeat things. She was crying so hard. And then afterward, um, when she finally had finished the story, she had to leave the class and an assistant came in to, to stay with us to the end of the day so she could go and collect herself. And I thought, wow, what a striking image of the, of the power of a book, because I spent my teen years uh, trying, to, uh, sometimes rottenly, to, to make teachers cry, and never as effective as, as your book. <laughs> uh, fortunately, my mother had already read it to me and I'd already enjoyed the story. Um, so I, I wasn't worried about missing the ending, but I thought, my gosh, the power that, that a writer had, had held over my, my fourth grade teacher, and that was a memory that has stuck with me, and I thought, well, what else could a book do? So my guest tonight needs no introduction, uh, Catherine Patterson, uh, two-time Newbery Award winner, winner of the Hans Christian Andersen Award. Um, you were named in 2000 to be a living legend by the Library of Congress. I think you were one of, what, 80 uh, living legends at this point? Oh, I, I, yeah, something like that. I'm not alone in that category. No, it's very impressive. You're with uh, Toni Morrison, Steven Spielberg, uh, Martin Scorsese, all, all kinds of people. Judy Bloom. Uh, um, um, Maurice Sendak, uh, Beverly Cleary, were the, we were the children and young adult writers among the 70, 80. And uh, two of them are uh, mentioned in your newest book, uh, Birdie's Bargain. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, available if you're listening to us uh, as this comes out, esteemed audience. You could be pre-ordering your copy of uh, Birdie's Bargain, which will be available Tuesday, October 5th, 2021. If you're listening to us after that date, good news, you can go get it right now. <laughs> so um, probably the uh, best place to start uh, is what is your first memory of wanting to be an author? Oh my, I didn't want to be an author as a child. And I say that with a little embarrassment because I have a lot of friends who are writers and all the really good writers I know knew when they were, by the time they were eight, that they were going to be writers and they were already writing great things. I was writing terrible things and not very much. Uh, uh, Shall I recite my first published work? 
Oh, absolutely. I've, I recite this a lot. Uh, pat, pat, pat. There is the rat. Where is the cat? Pat, pat, pat. Obviously, I was taught to, I was not taught to read at school, but at school we were reading uh, Dick and Jane, and I think Pat, Pat, Pat owes a lot of uh, credit to, I mean, a lot of, uh, what's the word I'm looking at, I'm looking for. Uh, anyhow, uh, it sounds like Dick and Jane to me. Uh, but um, I, I also have a letter that I wrote at the same time to my father, who was uh, up in the hinterlands of China. And I'm not ashamed of that. I was, he was made me very happy because he kept that letter that I had written him when I was seven years old. And uh, I could write pretty well when I was seven. But at school, I thought I was supposed to sound like school. <laughs> at home, I was reading wonderful books. I learned, I cannot remember when I learned how to read. Uh, it was as natural as speaking to me and I started that pretty early. Um, and I always knew I was a reader, but I didn't imagine I'd be a writer. And, and indeed, when that Pat 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 was published in the Shanghai American School newspaper, right beside it was a letter from Miss S.S. Shields, the second grade teacher, that says, said, the second grader's work is not up to our usual standards this week. So my first published work was published alongside my first review, which, as you can see, was not a very positive review. So nobody thought I would be a writer when I was a child. I didn't think I'd be a writer when I was a child. I had a, a teacher, a professor in graduate school who stopped me in the hall one day and said, have you ever thought of being a writer? And she was saying this on the basis of an essay question I'd written on an exam. And I said, no. I wouldn't want to add another mediocre writer to the world. <laughs> I mean, I, I majored in English literature in college. I know what great writing is. And she said, well, she was my theology professor. She said, uh, maybe that is what God is calling you to be. Well, I didn't think God needed a lot more mediocre writers. I thought God had plenty of mediocre writers. But um, so I didn't start writing. But after I came back from Japan, uh, she got me a job writing. So that's when I started being a writer, was writing curriculum for Presbyterian Church. And uh, then I, I thought, I don't really like writing curriculum. I'm going to write fiction. That's what I love. And of course, nobody wanted to publish anything I wrote for many years. So I was sending things around for seven years that nobody wanted to publish, except I sold two things in that seven-year period. I sold one short story, and the little magazine that published it died the following month. 
And I saw one poem and the little magazine that bought it died before it published it. That was my writing career for seven years. And I was writing quite regularly at that time. Although I have to say I had four tiny children. And so I was writing in the cracks of my life and a lot of stuff I've written that dates back to those days should never be published and I hope nobody will ever find it and publish it because I was learning how to write you know you have to learn how to do it and I learned I didn't go to school for it I learned because I read books and I learned how to put a sentence together I learned how to put a paragraph together I learned how to put a story together just because I read so much and I didn't necessarily read wonderful things, but, but I read enough to, to know the difference between good writing and uh, poor writing. Uh, so uh, it was reading that turned me into a writer and also Dr. Little who <laughs> kept pushing me until I started writing. She's very, she was, she's of course died now, now but she was very proud of the fact that she was the one who got me into writing. So I assume she was around to see you go on to win um, all of the award, well, at least some of the awards that you some won. Of, yes, like, yes. Um, yes. And um, she particularly loved Greg Gilly Hopkins because she had said that she couldn't find any books uh, with truly good characters in them. And she wanted to, me to write a book that had a truly good character. And so I put Mamie Trotter into Gilly Hopkins. And because um, uh, I think Mamie is a truly good person. And uh, <laughs> I was at a conference, uh, it was in Mississippi, I think, and, and everything was running a little late. And the woman who was going to introduce me was kind of taking me down the aisle towards the stage and this young woman grabbed me by the other arm and she said wait wait I have to ask you uh, I'm, I'm doing a doctoral on children on southern settings in children's literature and I have to know who is Mamie Trotter and I was being dragged by the other arm and I said God as I went and I I've often said I didn't know from the expression of our face if they believed in God at, in, at the University of Chicago, but I was sure they didn't think she spoke with a Southern accent. But uh, yeah, that's, that's my true character, the person that loves unconditionally and uh, doesn't give up on you. Of course, I've uh, just re-enjoyed or, or, or re-read uh, the great Julie Hopkins, uh, and of course, she immediately commands uh, sympathy uh, from the from the reader, and even a little bit of an ad, of admiration for how committed she is to being rotten. <laughs> which, fair enough. But when she was mean to Mimi, I was like, "Whoa, whoa, let's, <laughs> let's have some reason." <laughs> yeah. We, uh, it's uh, Gilly 
uh, <laughs> of course, I got, as you probably know, get a lot of um, unhappy people, mostly unhappy adults from the books I've written. And uh, there was one woman who knew my father stopped me. And she's, because she was so upset about Gilly's bad language. And she said, what does your father think of this book? Now, my father was a conservative Presbyterian minister who'd been a missionary in China. And I said, well, and it was absolutely true. I said, of all the books I've written, Gilly Hopkins is his favorite. But of course, I said, he had read the parable of the prodigal son. Wouldn't that mean of me? <laughs> but it's, it's true because I think, you know, Gilly is the, is the prodigal who's loved by the father and welcomed home. Although Gilly couldn't stay with, that's, that's what makes uh, my young readers unhappy is because Gilly couldn't stay with Mamie after she'd found that kind of love. Uh, but uh, I, I very interested. One day I was talking to an after-school group of kids and several kids in the group were foster kids or had been foster kids. And, and the children who hadn't had that experience were just really berating me for not letting Gilly stay with Mamie Trotter and, and the other kids were shaking their heads that don't work that way. Your uh, endings uh, from based, based on the, 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 the most recent books that I've read without spoiling anything, um, they don't end necessarily all sad all the time, but they don't end overly happy either. They seem to aim for a sort of an honest medium. Is that a fair assessment somewhere between happy and sad? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I think, you know, and that's why I worry a little bit when children read my books when they're too young. I mean, being able to read well doesn't isn't the same thing as having an emotional maturity to read that particular book. And I would never stop a child from reading a book because I think there's a, a lot of interior filter that helps you in those situations. I was never, my conservative parents never stopped me from reading anything. And I read all kinds of stuff because I read very early and I read very broadly. Uh, but it, I worry when children read books like mine too young because there's a stage in your life when you need happily ever after. And I want children to be able to have happily ever after when that's what they really need. And then they get a little older and they need, they see what the world is like and then they're ready to read books that don't give them that straight happily ever after. Does that make sense to you, Rob? It does. I know that one of Bertie's big concerns is adults lying to her all of the time. And I think that if Bertie came to one of your books, she wouldn't feel that way about you. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs>
Well, I've got, um, well, you know, I've got one question that I think will lead us directly to Birdie's Bargain, because I've got a lot of questions about Birdie's Bargain. I absolutely love this book. Oh, um, but I, I had uh, heard you say in an interview uh, that you want a version of yourself at five living in the Grand Peninsula Hotel being sneered at by British tourists to be in every book that you write. Why do you want that? And who is that character in Birdie's Bargain? Huh. Huh. Well, I just want that child to be in me as I write. It doesn't mean that every character I write is going to be that child. Uh, but um, I want to remember what it feels like to be sneered at. And And that's why I think it's so important that we respect children, respect their feelings, um, especially. And it just drives me crazy when adults say, well, of course, it's too young. They won't understand that. And they don't understand it as an adult does, but they feel, feel it even more deeply than most adults. And, you know, I've had adults lambast me and say, no child would ever understand your books are too intense. And I think, don't you remember how things felt when you were a child or adolescent when you thought everything was the end of the world? Um, I just... I don't want to ever forget how deeply I felt as a child. Now I'm, what, I'll be 89 next month. And I can take a lot of things without being torn to pieces that I couldn't have taken when I was nine. Uh, but um, I think that, depth of feeling I want that depth of feeling to be in all my books uh, even you know when I started writing Gilly Hopkins it was going to be my funny book because I was following Bruce Terabithia uh, which is on everybody's death list <laughs> you want to talk about <laughs> I thought I need to read a, write a book in which nobody dies because <laughs> I, I, I seem to have gotten a reputation <laughs> killing off people that people cared about and uh, and so I thought it was going to be funny but apparently if it's my book <laughs> it's not going to be all that funny uh, there may be funny bits and I've I hope in every book I write, there'll be times when people will smile at least, if not laugh out loud. Um, because I, I want the whole spectrum of, of human thought and feeling in every book I write. Uh, but... Uh, well, for what it's worth, um, I, one of the questions I had for you was about humor, because I laughed out loud with every one of these books, yes, including Bridge to Terabithia, not so much near the end, but early on, 
many yeah. lines. Uh, and, and Bertie's market is hysterical in multiple places. <laughs> you, do you crack yourself up when you write? How do you, how do you get your humor in there? Or is that something that comes into the second draft where you're looking for the opportunities to, to get a joke? No, no. But uh, oh, I remember when I was writing is, I keep kicking my little table that I've got this on. I'm sorry. Um, I, I was writing the same stuff as stars and I began writing it because I knew I was going to write a book about a kid whose father was in prison. And I, the, I was plodding along. It was so dismal. I thought, I, I don't think I can write this book. It's just so sad. And all of a sudden one day I thought, give her a little brother for heaven's sakes. <laughs> and so Bernie was born <laughs> to carry <laughs> the entertainment factor of the book. Oh. Well, we were talking just before we got started about Jacob Have I Loved and when the girls uh, have to find home for these these poor uh, kittens that have lived with a, a woman that's passed or that's, that's now in a hospital. Um, and um, if I may explain your own book to you. Uh, and uh, because they're worried that they're going to have to be destroyed, they, they drug them and they're, they're passing them out around so that everyone's seeing, oh, what a, what a sweet, sedate little kitten. This will be no trouble tomorrow. <laughs> of course I'm going to take this Until it wears off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you, you may have to explain my books to me because... I've been writing for so long that sometimes I forget whole things in the books. And I I'm, was in the process of writing a speech for uh, a couple of weeks from now um, at my alma mater. And I went back because I was trying to prove a point about what I write about. I went back to my very first novel. It wasn't as though the book I remembered. There were, I thought this one marvelous scene was the end of the book. It wasn't the end of the book. It, that scene didn't even play out the way I remembered. The end of the book was 10 pages later with another scene. <laughs> so, and I remember my youngest, I have four children, and my youngest, younger daughter uh, was far too young to read Jacob I Love when I wrote it. And so by the time she read it, she... Uh, Oh no, it was, uh, it wasn't Jacob, it was my second book of Nightingales at Wheat. And she came to ask me a question about it. And I didn't remember anything about what she said. I said, well, give me a hand, what, tell me what the context is. And she looked at me in utter amazement. And she said, mom, you wrote this book. <laughs> She, she couldn't believe I could forget anything in one of my own books. I said, well, it's been a long time since I wrote it, and I've, I've written a lot of books since then. Well, she didn't excuse me for that, because she has a wonderful memory, and if I need anything remembered, I always ask Mary. Uh, but I don't have that good a memory, even of my own books. And I was going to, in order to write the speech, which is then the theme of the of the uh, series is listen to your life and I thought well in order to write that I should read all reread all my novels 
I didn't have time to do that. So I just read, I just got the first one reread for the, for the speech. Uh, but, you know, I honestly don't remember a lot about them. They, and it, it always is very gratifying to me with my novels, how happy I am with them when I do reread them. Wow, I used to be able to really write. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a good thing I still like them. <laughs> well, that could be a nice uh, gift to yourself is to go and, and reread those books. Like, oh, this is written exactly the type of book that I enjoyed. How, how wonderful. <laughs> well, I think, I think people do write the kind of books that they enjoy. Don't you think most writers do that? Uh, the good ones do. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I, I remember one of my friends said, I write the books I wish I'd had when I was a child. And I think maybe there's a lot to that, that you do write the books for your young child self. Uh, I, I've read a lot of books as a child. I mean, I just read all the time as a child every time I could find a book. I, uh, and I still remember remember some of those. And I, I went back and reread one of my favorite books when I was middle school age, which was uh, an adult novel, but my mother had given it to me as a present because she knew that I would love it. And it's very interesting to me, my very conservative Presbyterian missionary mother gave me the yearling when I was 11 years old. And because she, she she had read it and she knew I would love it. And we didn't, we our family of five, we didn't have any much money. So most books were belonged to everybody. But this is was the first book I remember was just mine. It wasn't for any of my, my brother or my sisters. And uh, I went back to read it because I was asked to write an article about a book that had influenced me when I was middle school age and I thought the art that I had loved when I was in middle school and I read that book and I thought boy there are echoes of Bridge to Jerobithia in this in the from the yearling I mean that book really influenced me um uh, the boy who's only friend or well not only friend but uh, because uh, he did have that that wonderful crippled, uh, crippled friend that he loved, but but he didn't see him very often, and he was with uh, his dear friend, the flag, flag. Uh, and then flag has to be killed because he's destroying their crops, being a deer, <laughs> and. Uh, so then, you know, so I write a book about a boy who has a dear friend who dies, a, a, who has a mixed relationship with his father. And uh, I mean, there are, you know, I hear the echoes. I did, was certainly totally unconscious of them when I was writing Bruce with you. Well, since we're talking about the, the father in Bridge to Terabithia, I had heard that at the movie premiere, you kissed the evil T-1000 himself. You, you kissed Robert Patrick for his performance. Is that right? 
Isn't that embarrassing? Very <laughs> charming. <laughs> Maybe I just hugged him, uh, but he looked somewhat startled, and and I just said, I, "I'm sorry, I don't go around kissing strange men," but I was so afraid that scene was going to be messed up. And to me, it's the pivotal scene of the book. It's the most important thing that happens, and. I said, you just did it so beautifully. And I think he forgave me for kissing him when I told him how much I loved his work in my, in my book, my, my movie. Everybody's movie. Movies are very much um, a collaborative effort. Well, you've had uh, four of your works adapted for the film at this point, plus others in some stage of development. Uh, yeah. Uh, we, <laughs> much to Disney's surprise, Richie Terabithia was a big hit. And so they were immediately on the phone saying, uh, we're going to do Richie Terabithia number two three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, how Hollywood does things. Sure. And I said, there's no sequel. He said, of course there's a sequel. I said, no, there's not a sequel. And they had the big money guy from Walden call me up on the phone and tell me how, it's impo how important it was to make a sequel. And I said, no. There's no sequel. <laughs> and my son, who wrote the script and was one of the producers, said, no, there's no sequel. And so uh, we've had a great deal of trouble assembling money since then, <laughs> because Disney will ever not ever speak to us again, uh, because there's no sequel to Bridge to Terabithia. <laughs> So, point ten, they uh, wanted to uh, change the ending so that Leslie simply went into a coma. Oh well, there were several suggestions, and that was certainly one of them. And my son David, who is nothing if not dramatic, told me he stood there with this table full of executives with the book in his hand and shook it, and he said. Read these last 28 pages. This book is loved all over the world because of these last 28 pages. You can't touch the last 28 pages. But it wasn't just because it was my book. It was because it, it was written because of his friend that died. And he was determined that it be a worthy tribute to Lisa Hill. And... Uh, we didn't win all the battles, but we won the war, I think. Well, I'm not ashamed of that movie. Well, absolutely shouldn't be. It's a, it's a wonderful film. And knowing Hollywood, it will probably be remade another five times <laughs> before they let it rest. <laughs> they can figure out how to make couldn't it. get themselves a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> And if there is a sequel, I had, didn't have anything to do with it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> they may have to wait till I'm dead and do the sequel. <laughs> um, 
well, with uh, with a with a film version of your novel, uh, there must be a tremendous amount of apprehension because if the film comes out and they change the novel, everyone not everyone you'll you'll have your your fans who read the who read the book and loved it all over the world, and they'll know. But there'll be a whole bunch of other folks who never get around to reading the book and just watch the movie and say, "Well, that must be it." Does it? Does it, is it, because you've had this happen four times and presumably it will, it will happen more. Um, does that fill you with apprehension or is it enough that the book exists outside of the movie? Well, I, I don't want a bad movie. Uh, there is a movie version of my novel, Liddy. And it was done by a company that works with the BBC. And I thought, well, I watch Masterpiece Theater all the time. I'd love their work. And so, sure, I'd love for them to do it. Don't ever watch it. Somehow, they have decided that it takes place in Canada. Well, they didn't have slavery up there. People ran away to Canada. You didn't, so they could be freed from slavery. And Lydia is definitely not Irish. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So BBC, the company that worked with BBC did a Hollywood thing on, on Lydia, which, I mean, even if they, if I mean, done a good version, maybe I could have stood it, but they, it's just so corrupt. I mean, you know, it's historically <laughs> a mess. And uh, so I'm gonna, no, don't watch it. If you ever, it comes on a Canadian television every now and then. And uh, since I live in Vermont, it's, I can, I could watch it if I wanted to, but I definitely do not want to. I don't think it's ever been shown in this country. But if you haven't watched the movie of the great Kelly Hopkins, I think that is a simply wonderful adaptation of my book. That's another one your son wrote as well, right? Oh, yeah. And both of my sons produced it. And we had a dickens of a time getting enough money. It was a shoestring budget. But uh, it, it's really, really well done. And May, Mamie Trotter is uh, so great. Uh, now I have to come up with everybody's name, but Kathy Bates plays Mamie Trotter, and I, I just, I just love what she did with it. I, I cry every time I watch it, and I've watched it, I think, fourteen times now. And I think, well, this time I'm not going to cry, and then I do. <laughs> Um, a lot of uh, a lot of questions uh, for you. Um, 
um, about to just we, I, I could keep you here uh, all day and all night <laughs> talking about this. Was it 17 books that you've offered uh, for children and young people that you published at this point? Yeah, and, and um, Bertie will be 18. Something I read. Oh, 18 uh, novels. I've got some, you know, I've got some picture books and, and easy to read, most of which are out of print. Uh, but uh, I've got 18 novels. Well, something you wrote in the acknowledgments for Birdie's Bargain that I absolutely believed, and yet it still shocked me. She wrote, after I finish a book, I say to myself, well, that was a good career while it lasted, because I'm convinced that every book will be my last. And I believe you, but still, even now, 18 books, uh, Newberries, the Hans Christian well, you, could, you could see my children rolling their eyes when I say that. I said, well, this one surely is. I mean, look how old I am. <laughs> but, uh, and I'm not like some of my, I mean, I have writer friends who've got so many ideas, they'll never live long enough to write them. I, I finished a book and I think, well, that was great. <laughs> but that's it. <laughs> Nothing left in the tank. You put it all on the page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, then something happened. You know, I I went to Cuba, and I I thought, why don't people in America know about the amazing Cuban literacy campaign? It's a story that needs to be told because you, know, you we have to learn that there is good in our enemies and there's less than good in our heroes. Uh, you know, that's, that's maturity when you can recognize the good in those people that you don't admire and the evil in the people that you adore. Well, I assume uh, you learned that rather viscerally uh, when, because you, uh, what, you were five when you had to leave China because it was being invaded by Japan. And then you ended up as a missionary in Japan at uh, about 17, 18? Yeah. Uh, and, and the, uh, as I've said, to be loved by people that you thought you had hated is a wonderful experience. And I wish everybody could have that experience. Now that uh, Birdie's Bargain is launching into the world and that book is, you know, you've still got to go out there and, and promote it. Uh, presumably you'll be overseeing the movie version once that gets up and running. <laughs> <laughs> but have you got another idea yet or are you waiting for the next oh, idea? No, I don't have another idea. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even gotten the hardback copy of this book. <laughs> give me a give me a little time, Rob, to say I won't write another book. <laughs> What's the average time it takes you to get to your next idea? Oh, well, I've been writing. I wrote my first novel in nineteen sixty-eight. Was probably well. I mean, I started writing it in. It was published in 73. So 
18 in that many years is not a lot of novels. I mean, some people do a, a novel a year, but, and it, I, I can't, I mean, I, I have written a novel in about a year, but something like Jacob I Love took almost three years and Rebels of the Heavenly Kingdom took almost three years. And, uh, you know, I, there are several things about writing a novel. One is that one idea does not a novel make. You start out with one idea and you run out of steam of, by the third chapter. A novel is woven together from a number of ideas that it, for a long time don't seem to even be related. And then you begin to see how they fit together in the one book. With, with Bertie's bargain, I have in my files about four or five false starts for a book about a little girl standing in the middle of the road wearing a t-shirt that says, I heart Jesus and bawling her eyes out. I had that vivid picture of that child, but I didn't know why she was in the middle of the road. I didn't know why she was wearing that t-shirt. I didn't know what was going on in her life. And I tried several approaches to figure out what was happening. But it wasn't until I got an, I had another idea about writing about a child who becomes friends, if you can call it friendship, with someone who takes over her life. And because as a child, I had a number, you know, we were moving so often and I was so needy as a, for friendship that I was easy pickings <laughs> or predatory, predatory friends. And I had a string of them through my, my early years. And one of them was a pathological liar. <laughs> and when I realized that I could put the child who's crying in the middle of the street because she's, and she's gonna be very vulnerable with the, the book about the child who's, uh, only friend is a pathological liar. <laughs> it worked, but neither of those ideas worked by themselves. Uh, and uh, I often think of uh, uh, same stuff as stars because I, I had uh, gone to uh, Chittenden Correctional Center to talk with a, a group of prisoners about Greg Kelly Hopkins, because they had read it in their book club. And the, uh, ever, they all had paperback 
copies of the book. And after we finished um, the session, they lined up to have their books autographed. And I was asking them their names so I could put their names in the book. And one young man said, uh, well, it's not for me, it's for my daughter. Her name is Angel. And I wanted to write a book about a little girl named Angel whose father was in prison. And I couldn't do it because I didn't know what the story was or, how, you know, I mean, that's all I had. And then I was visiting a friend in California and she gave me a copy of a magazine that her husband was the editor for and had a picture of exploding supernova on the back of it that had been captured by the latest telescope. And it said, the telescope found these elements. And he said, the scientist said, these are the same elements that are in our bodies. And I thought, what would it mean to a child that the world considered waste material to know that she was made of the same stuff as the stars. And once I got those two ideas going, I could write the book, but I couldn't write it until I had the second idea. And then I had to give her a little brother because <laughs> such a dismal book. <laughs> when uh, when that happens, when you find the, the 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 other piece of the puzzle that now enables you to go forward, does that bring to mind? Is that um, do you think that that's your subconscious at work? Is there is there some version of a muse at work? Is there a guardian angel? What is that you think that leads you to that 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 extra piece? Or missing piece? Well, you know, I'm biblically oriented. <laughs> it's providential. Uh, but I think it's the kind of thing that happens a lot to writers. The thing you need suddenly appears. Uh, and I mean, I've had friends just, you know, tell me over and over again about some instant like that. And, when they've either been stuck or they've not known something and it, it it's just suddenly there for them. Oh. So, you know, I, I before I became <laughs> a real writer, I would go hear real writers speak. And sometimes they were so hokey I thought, well if I ever get to be a real writer, I'm not gonna be hokey. And land of Goshen, am I hokey? <laughs> because there's something very mysterious about the whole process. Don't you think so? You're right. In fact, I think uh, as Bertie is having doubts about God, and she's wondering, is there anything to this? Well, Bertie, start writing a novel, and you will feel <laughs> enough of, and you'll bump up against enough of a mystery that's, oh, okay. <laughs> there, there it is. <laughs> Mm. there is it's it's not very practical certainly not for if you're leading a writing workshop and you're trying to give people practical advice about how to get started it's it's what i don't teach <laughs> 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 i i really you know people always wanting me to teach writing 
And I thought, how can I teach writing when I don't know how I do it? I think there are people who are able to step aside from their own process enough to help people simply. I, I mean, I'm on the board of trustees of the College of Fine Arts and the teachers there and the writing programs are absolutely amazing. And they do help people um, figure out how to shape a novel uh, and, and, you know, they don't, they can't give you talent and they can't really give you ideas, but they can help you understand what makes a novel good and what makes it work. Uh, and I, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to do that because I, because I never learned how to do it. I just kind of did it. You know, but I, I really do, as I said earlier, it's because I read so much. I think that's why subconsciously I know sort of how to shape a novel without ever being taught how to do it. Well, I read uh, in the acknowledgments you were, you were thanking uh, Varian Johnson and some other writers that you attended a workshop with. Yeah, Catherine Patterson comes into one of my workshops. I'm shutting down my presentation. I'm abandoning the lectern. So it's all yours. You'll take it from here. <laughs> no, no. no. I, in fact, I told I told uh, uh, the the teachers I I shouldn't come to the workshop because it would, you know, people get intimidated. For I mean, I'm sorry. I don't think I'm an intimidating person at all, but apparently just because you've won a prize or two people think you know you know something but um they said no no come in and be fun and that was the workshop where i figured out how to put those two stories in my childhood together it hadn't occurred to me and then uh, i thought well i'm in the workshop i gotta pretend i'm writing a book <laughs> <laughs> so so I thought well I'll start with the, the kid on the you know in the I heart Jesus t-shirt and see where I go from there and that's when it occurred to me that I could put that other idea about the child who's taken advantage of by predatory when you when you get started and you've got you've got false starts with your initial image but when you have those two pieces what happens next is it you sit down every day and the story pours out of you over the course of a week <laughs> <laughs> or, or what happens <laughs> well i've heard i've heard writers say how that happens to them and i've had days when it seems like it just flows magically but most days you're putting in a hard day's work and I, I'm also the kind of writer who wants to know where I'm headed before I start I don't like the feeling of just sitting down every day and thinking oh whatever <laughs> And I've, I have friends who say, oh, if I knew how it was going to end, I'd be too bored to write it. Well, 
if I didn't know how, sort of, how it ended, I wouldn't ever get there. I'd be wandering off on a strange pathway. But if you know how it ends, I mean, this is me. Every writer is different. And that's why I can't teach anybody because I have to do it my way. And I, that might not be anybody else's way, but I need to know where I'm headed. And sometimes when I get to where I thought I was headed, it changes, but at least I'm heading in that direction. And I try to get through a whole first draft and Annie Lamott is very helpful telling you how awful first drafts are and we don't use the language, but um, you have to realize your first draft is garbage. You're just getting to know your characters. And by the time you finish your first draft, which is garbage and should never be seen by the light of day, um, you know your character a little better. And every time you go through, you think, oh, well, that, and I know he would never have said that. That's just not anything that would ever occur to him. Or I know she wouldn't do that. Because now I know her better and I know that would be manipulating her in a way that is not true to the character that you've gotten to know. So uh, I love rewriting. I told my editor once that it was the only place in life where you could make, take spilt milk and turn it into ice cream. And so every time she was suggesting that something needed to be rewritten, she said, remember how much you love to rewrite, Kathy? <laughs> and I do. That's my favorite part of the writing process. The first draft is very hard for me, getting, but you can't rewrite anything you haven't written. So you have to write something so you can fix it and make it better. And, you know, I, I just try to get to the end of, before I start trying to rewrite what I've written. Because otherwise you, you spend your days polishing something that may never appear in the final book. So just get through, know that you've created garbage in the first draft, but you've got something that you can make better. And that, and that you're willing to put as much time in rewriting into it as as it takes. How many drafts, on average, would you do for, say, Birdie's Bargain? And when well, do you know that you're done? I don't know, because uh, some parts you're going to rewrite many times. Other parts will stay the same as they were in the very first draft for some unknown reason. So when people ask me to count the drafts, I, I, I couldn't tell you. Uh, more. Uh, I just keep writing, keep working on it until it feels good to me and then I'll send it to an editor and she'll tell me. <laughs> 
<laughs> bad it is. <laughs> I'll write some more. <laughs> your editor, your first reader? No. Um, for uh, many years, but it was my husband. And then he died. And my editor, who edited from my very first book and was my editor for 40 years, uh, was no longer able to edit. And I thought, well, I'll never write another book because my two main supports are gone. And I've, I really sincerely thought that was the end. And I didn't mind because I'd rather, I'd rather read than write anyhow. I could just read all I wanted to. <laughs> work anymore uh, but then I went to Cuba and I, I, I wanted to write that story but I you know we have this feeling strong feeling that you shouldn't write out of your culture well my culture is pretty limited I'm a 88 year old lady who lives in a retirement community and if I could only write books from my place in life, then I'm pretty limited. Uh, I believe strongly both in the imagination and in research. <laughs> uh, I'm willing to put in the work. And no one else had written that story about the Cuban literacy and the wonderful young people who are a part of it and their courage. And not only to go into the wilds of Cuba to teach uh, people how to read and write, but the the courage and the kindness of the peasants and farmers that took them in and because they wanted to learn how to read and write. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. And I wanted it told. And no Cuban-American had done it. Partly because they, it's very hard for people who have such a vision of Castro's Cuba, they can't see that Castro did some good things for Cuba. He was a terrible dictator. In fact, my best friend there, I think all the time she's going to get jailed because she she was a she was one of these young brigadistas in the, in 61. And when I found that out, I thought, well, that explains the media. But it doesn't explain why she wouldn't put in jail because she was always speaking her mind in a dictatorship, which is not a safe thing to do. And I'm not arguing about all the difficulties of Castro's Cuba, but I think we have to recognize they have a one, I mean, they've got 99.9% .9 literacy. We have 84%. They've got a wonderful medical program for everyone. They have free education from preschool through university. You can get a PhD in Cuba from not paying for it if you're capable and willing to do the work. So, you know, we could learn something from our enemies for willing to. 
it does seem to be, um, uh, I don't know if this is a very American thing or if I just more aware of it that we're doing it, uh, but then we say, okay, well, this other country is not perfect. Therefore, we're not going to listen to any of the things that they're doing. Yeah. And, and uh, well, in, in Brigadier's year, you might remember that in the end of the book, she says, no, my country's not perfect, but is yours. <laughs> <laughs> and if you answer yes, number yeah. one, where are you? And number two, how close are, how much attention are you paying? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I've got uh, several questions uh, about Birdie's Bargain for you because I, I, I really adored this book. Esteemed audience knows that I never summarize an author's book because why would I make you sit through me doing that? That would be terrible. So if you <laughs> would give uh, esteemed audience kind of an overview of Birdie's Bargain uh, and we'll go from there. <laughs> well, what I tell people when they say, what is your new book about? I say, well, it's about a little girl who makes a bargain with God. God didn't keep his side of the bargain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then they get a little worried, uh, which they should. Uh, you know, of course, the book is a little more uh, helpful than that. But everybody wants you to say it in one sentence. So that's, that's my one sentence. Um, but... It's very, it's very much my 10-year-old self in many, many ways, my nine and 10-year-old self. Um, in the, my, my father lost a leg in World War I, and I guess that's one reason why Bertie's father loses a leg. Um, Um, of course, I never knew my father when he had two legs, uh, but um, there, I don't even know what, how to answer that question any further than I have. You, you want to ask me another question? Maybe it would help. Uh, sure. Um, why set this during the Gulf War? Well, uh, that was one of my questions to begin with. You know, why is this child standing in the middle of the road and watching a disappearing car and not, that she's not in? Who's, why are they leaving her behind? Whoever's going away. Because she's obviously crying because she's being left behind. And so I, I, I didn't know when I started that it was because her father was going to war. Um, I, I, at one point, I decided that her parents were going to go to Africa to teach for three years. And she didn't want to go because she was afraid to go to Africa. Um, and I don't know at what point I gave that one up. <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember that was one of the possible uh, solutions to the question of the, you know, that's an interesting thing about the way a writer's mind works. 
sometimes you simply have this picture and this has happened to be a number of times a very vivid picture of a character in a situation and you don't know what the situation is you don't even know the character yet but you your job is to figure out why that character is in that situation and that becomes the book i remember with um master puppeteer i had a vivid picture of a young boy in the upstairs of a storehouse japanese storehouse looking for something that he couldn't find and then as he's looking he hears the sound on the stairs and he sees in the dark the white face of a warrior puppet coming towards him and that's i had that picture but i didn't know what he was looking for why he was there and why he was being menaced apparently by a puppet uh in jip's story i had a vivid picture of a baby on a dirt road and a wagon retreating away as though the baby has been left behind on the road i had to figure out why this baby is on the road <laughs> uh, so uh, i guess other writers have you know start with just a picture and then they have to figure out the meaning of the picture um i started different places with different books of course with bridge therapy i was just trying to make sense of a tragedy an actual tragedy you know, why would a little girl be struck by lightning when it didn't even seem to be a storm it didn't make any sense whatsoever and of course you can't put that in a book cuz nobody would believe it <laughs> what actually the actual event uh I, i started writing gilly hopkins because we'd been asked to be temporary foster parents and after the um, evacuation of the children from cambodia and they didn't know what to do with them and they just asked people like us who had adopted and they had therefore been cleared as proper parents if we take the boys in for a couple of weeks until they could figure out what to do and uh i had to realize that i was not a good foster mother 
because I was saying, well, we can't solve that problem because they're only going to be here for a couple of weeks. Of course, they were there for considerably more than a couple of weeks. Is it? Uh, or I said, no, thank heavens, they're only going to be here a short time. And I thought, I'm treating two human beings as though they're disposable. And human beings are not disposable. So I'm going to write them, write a book with the best foster mother of all time, the one that I wasn't. And I thought, you know, possibly have inspired someone else to be a wonderful foster mother <laughs> after they've they've read the, the great Gilly Hopkins. So, <laughs> also, I thought, how would I feel if people regarded me as disposable? And I figured I, was, I would be furious. Of course, I realized later that I had two foster children in the story, and I might well have been William Ernest and been timid and frightened and withdrawn. Well, I've not talked to enough authors who've written about uh, terrible foster parents that I'm going to go ahead and put out there that although you might be very hard on yourself, you're way above average. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did have a wonderful experience at the National Book Festival. Uh, oh, well, the last time it was outdoors, which was, I can't remember what year that was. And there was a line for autographing and uh, then eventually this very tall, handsome Asian man came to the table and he said, Miss Patterson, I'm Pitu, who is one of the children that we had fostered that many years ago. And I didn't, you know, I mean, he was absolutely non-English speaking when he was with us and uh, adorable child, but um, very much persecuted by his older brother, who was a very angry child. And my other children warned us to adopt Pitu. And I said, no, we can't, we can't do that. We're just taking care of him. But the family that did become his permanent foster parents, uh, didn't want to have anything to do with us. And so we, he left our house one day and we never saw him or heard about him. The family that took the older brother, because they didn't, the older brother did not want to be placed with his younger brother, uh, kept in touch with us over the years. Uh, so it, it was their choice, not ours. But I was, I was so touched to see little Pitu all grown up. I found myself uh, becoming a little, little nervous. Uh, not, not in a lack of faith sort of way, but as I was reading Birdie's Bargain, uh, I knew, of course, that you um, had a history of mission work. Um, I thought it was probably safe to assume which side of the uh, 
of the atheist believer argument you might come down on. And I thought, well, now I'm going to I'm going to read something that maybe will have some platitudes and assure me that there's an easy answer. And that is absolutely not what I got. And in fact, I was uh, shocked by um, you. I mean, it's 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 a middle grade book, but you bring up the diary of Anne Frank. There is plenty of darkness, real darkness, that that Bertie is addressing, and certainly we see some some darkness um, uh, with um, oh my God, it's got a, 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 a Alicia Marie or, or Alice May. Uh, we we get an example of some some uh, real darkness in the world, and it would have been uh, so easy to have introduced a guardian angel character or a miracle somewhere in there that here you go, here's inconvertible proof of God, therefore argument resolved. And you don't do that. You leave it ambiguous. I'm not, not ambiguous as to what Birdie comes away at, I think, toward the end. Um, but you don't tell the reader how to think. And I'm also um, uh, surprised by your restraint in that, you know, we're you're, you're presenting all sides of an argument that I assume you spent quite a lot of time uh, thinking about. In fact, there's this uh, quote that, that I absolutely love that I think encapsulate a lot of this. Uh, Bertie says at one where she writes in her diary, Dear Heavenly Father, I'll stop acting like a jerk if you'll start acting like God and take care of us for a change. Uh, which I absolutely love because it's like, is that not, is that not it? <laughs> was, there, was there a temptation? To provide, uh, you, you've got a scene where a character talks directly to Birdie and provides some religious instruction. Did you have to write multiple drafts and say, no, Catherine, don't put too much of your beliefs down on the paper or? Oh, well, Gran has a lot of my beliefs in her. Uh, so as she talks to Birdie and tries to get Birdie to think about what, who God really is and not the kind of God that's fire and brimstone and hatred. And, uh, but no, I mean, you're not writing a religious track when you're writing a novel. You're writing a story. And the wonderful thing about a story is the writer get the reader gets to choose the real meaning. Uh, you you lay it open for the reader to decide what the meaning is. Uh, you don't you know if you, I've written propaganda, and I hope it was good propaganda. But when you're writing a story, you're inviting the reader to interpret and choose. And if it has no meaning for them, then that's their choice. If it has a meaning different from what you wish they'd get from it, that's their choice. Um, it's, you know, you, you put your trust in the reader and give them permission to, to make the story their story. 
you do. Too many bad writers don't, but you did. I think an atheist could read this book and say, yep, nope, as I thought, there is no God, but I really like the story about birth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> I didn't mean to go that far. <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, I love and hate. Uh, I, I love him because I hate him. I, I really dislike Counselor Ron. In fact, I was uh, reading the advanced reader copy, so before the, the final proof edit, and there was one typo that had him down as Counselor Rob, and I said, oh no, uh, because he's, uh, I assume Counselor Ron is a bit of your critique of, um, of, of some of Christian culture. Bertie is nervous about reading the books about science because Counselor Ron assures her she should not be reading those books. Uh, he puts up... Uh, I hope uh, he's not too much of a stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew Counselor Ron when I was young and in church. Um, I, I had some... I I've had known some a few Counselor I'm sorry? I've known a few in my time, too. You do just this wonderful job of illustrating the absolute harm that he has done to Birdie and her faith. Because now, not only is she worried about her father because she's made this bargain with God, she's not 100% that he's Counselor Ron's type of Christian. So not only might he die, he might go to hell. So she's got that added layer on, on, on top of uh, all of her other things. And I'm assuming that's a, a conscious choice that, because, um, you know, I, I assume... Um, Christians will sit down and, and read this, and maybe some who were in the camp of Harry Potter is, you know, that the devil's plaything, which I think you address in the, the book also. Um, and they're going to say, oh, wait a moment. Am I a little bit more Counselor Ron than I should be? <laughs> and, and you know that the pastor of, of the church and the head of the camp is not that kind. He might be conservative, but he believes in kindness and uh, Counselor Rob, I think at one point says he thinks kindness is overrated. <laughs> but uh, his boss doesn't. And I'm watching our time and it's, it's flying by, but I did want to ask you a little bit about uh, description with, within the book, because I noticed that you don't spend a lot of time on physical description um, or our setting, um, but you say that uh, Alicia Marie had the face of a chicken. She had the grip of a hawk, um, which is wonderful. We, we know that grandma is beautiful, but you don't spend a lot of time telling us about hair color, eye color, um, outfits, unless they're uh, the green sweater that's particularly important to the plot? Well, that's kind of the way I write, because I like the reader to draw their own pictures, especially of the central character. And the whole, you know, what I always consider hokum thing of having the protagonist look into a mirror and describe themselves. <laughs> absolutely none of that. We don't have that. And I did not miss it. I, I had a very clear vision of what everyone looked like. It's only because <laughs> I'm a book nerd that I was in there highlighting. I'm like, nope, it's not there and I don't need it. <laughs> it's amusing to me that the person who is most described in detail is Alicia Marie or Alice May. Uh, but, and I did that because 
Bertie's studying her. Uh, and what Bertie is seeing when she looked at Alice Marie, Alicia Marie, or Alice May, is is uh, quite different from what she's, uh, Alice is saying about herself. Uh, the the lie, the lie is physical as well as. Um, As, as well as, you know, what she says. I felt for, for Bertie, I was also that child. I, I like pathological liars, at least for a short period of time. They always have the most interesting stories. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but I love this, uh, this, this might be my favorite line in the book. It's one that I'm, I'm gonna be thinking about the long, next time I'm in a long conversation. Is if she even wanted to, there wasn't a teeny weeny hole in Alicia's endless wall of sentences to poke a word through, which <laughs> if that was <laughs> that conversation to a T. We've known several people that way. <laughs> <laughs> audience knows I have to ask because I ask everybody and I'm not going to chicken out just because I'm talking to one of my childhood heroes. Every author who comes out here gets asked, Catherine Patterson, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost and or because it's you existence of God, a proof of the existence of God beyond faith? I've never seen a flying saucer. I don't think I've ever seen a ghost. And I have no proof of the presence of God because it's faith. I feel very close to God sometimes, but you could write that off as my imagination if you didn't believe it. And I feel loved. Uh, yeah, that's my proof is just about that. Fair enough, shoot. I thought uh, you'd have some hard evidence for me. And the next time you have me comes on, I could say, oh, I could play the clip and say, look, <laughs> there's the evidence. <laughs> no, no, I don't, you know, I, uh, I think, I think, um, There may be a ghost. How, how do we know? You know, uh, because I, I certainly I felt the presence of people I love who've died. You call that a ghost? Uh, When you in the acknowledgments uh, with the words of Sister Anne, is it Jehame, uh, who, who asked you, where have you seen God lately? Uh-huh. Yeah. Where, uh, where have you seen God lately? Well, this morning, uh, when I was having my quiet time, uh, I looked out and I saw this tiny little bird just fly right up into the sky. And I said, that's faith. <laughs>
that bird is going into the heavens. Her wing, the wingspan is about like that. And I thought, um, you know, I, sometimes I, I feel God in the tree outside my window and in the grass. And every, every, the creator is in everything that he's created. I say he because I'm 88 years old. I know God does not have to, <laughs> as we have. Uh, and I don't mind saying she. I just am not going to ever say it watching over Israel, neither slumbers not nor sleeps. Uh, <laughs> But we don't, we don't, you know, it's interesting in Japanese because they don't have, they have pronouns, but they don't use them very much. So the things that, that uh, feminists feel that are so awful in the Bible, a lot of it's just because of the English translation and we have to, we use pronouns that express gender. And, uh, in Japanese, the, the pronouns usually the subjects are very often subsumed in the verb itself, so you don't have that problem of God being either he or she. So, but I'm not going to say God it. So <laughs> I've said God he all my life. And so, I, it, to me, it's it's awkward to say use the feminine pronoun for God, even though I don't think God is like a man. In fact, I know a lot of women who seem more God-like than a lot of men. <laughs> well, I'm fine with either gender. I, I do wonder sometimes why it would be a comfort to someone to think that oh, God's the same gender as me. He, God's like me. Why would that be comforting to you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. If God's like me, we're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> well, the thing about it is that, you know, the Bible has so many images of God, and they're not always tied to male images. Yeah. Um, the woman's sweeping the floor, finding to find the lost coin is an image of God and his love. And and you know, the wonderful image, like a mother loving her children. There are plenty of female images of God in the Bible. Uh, so God is good. I've got uh, one final question for you because I, I, I promised you we'd, we'd end within a reasonable time and you've been so very generous with your time. This has been an absolute privilege and a pleasure. And this is an episode I'm going to go back and I'm going to re-listen to multiple times to, to prove to myself that really happened. I really got to have such a wonderful conversation. <laughs> Uh, but uh, my final question for you, and um, usually where I like to end the show, is some variation of if you could go back to the start of your writing career, the middle, wherever it would be useful to you, 
and give yourself some advice that would have made a crucial difference for you and might make a crucial difference for everyone who's listening to us or watching us, what would you go back and tell yourself? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I started writing so late. I was in my 40s when my first novel was published. So I already wasn't taking myself too seriously. <laughs> and I think that's, I think that's probably the advice I would give. And, 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 you know, sometimes I have to still give myself that advice. Uh, but I think Sometimes we just need to remind ourselves it's not all about me. And I'm sure I've had to do that at the beginning, middle, ending. Shall we say the end? But you're not going to let me say the end of my career? <laughs> uh, <laughs> We're going to do this again in a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> I expect to read several more novels from you before you <laughs> Oh, me. Well, all my friends are either dead or retired. I think it would be all right for me to retire, don't you think? <laughs> well, I would have thought so, but here we are talking about Bertie's Martin. <laughs> I meant to retire several times. <laughs> oh, me. Well, everyone would have understood if you wanted to call it a day after my Brigadista year, but no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I broke my leg. I had to do something. <laughs> Where can uh, esteemed audience find you online uh, and find more information about you or even your books? Uh, am I supposed to tell people? Well, I'm, I'm rebuilding my website right at the moment. Um, so, but that's either katherinepatterson.com or, or terabithka.com. And uh, we're still kind of working on that. I, I don't Twitter. I don't Instagram. I have a Facebook account, which my son John is kind enough to run for me. So sometimes uh, my friends will say, tell John not to put in so many experts exclamation points because nobody's going to believe it's you if it has all those exclamation points but uh, you know I tell him things to put in there too I just don't do it every day and I'm, I don't do all the things they tell you now all writers have to do and I figure too bad uh, because I've got other things to do with my life and promote myself so, <laughs> I, you know, I'm fine. I'm comfortable and I don't need to push, push, push myself. I need to learn how to be a more loving, better person. And that should take more time than pushing some fake image of myself. So, uh, but... I am on Facebook, 
And often I say things. Sometimes my husband, my husband, my son puts things up for me. And, uh, but we try to do things that we think would be interesting and helpful. Anything else, Rob? I think we've, we've get well, since you asked, no, <laughs> I won't get greedy. <laughs> I'll save some questions for the next book. When we do this again, I'll have them all ready to go. Uh, esteemed audience, uh, you, you know who I am. Head to middlegradeninja.com for interviews with all the best people. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beanies. It'll change your life. And if it doesn't, it's free. Uh, and as always, God willing that I'm alive. I'll see you next week. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. <laughs>